Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to some of the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and today we're speaking with Craig Evans, the Portfolio Manager of the Tribeca Global Natural Resources Fund, a fund that seeks to provide investors with a return of 15 to 20% per annum with low correlation to traditional assets. It seeks to and can gain these returns regardless of the macroeconomic environment. Investing in commodities is well known to many Australians, with companies such as Rio Tinto and BHP being household names. However, many Australians are also aware that investing in commodities can be a real roller coaster ride and subject to macroeconomic conditions and the vagaries of global markets and demands. We prefer, and I prefer with many of my clients, to access the commodity growth cycle and also the opportunities through commodities through a long short manager such as Craig. So I think you'll find this podcast to be very relevant. I hope you enjoy. Please don't forget to send feedback. I really enjoy that feedback. You can reach me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Enjoy the podcast. Craig Evans, welcome to Inside the Road. Morning. Afternoon, how are you going? It is afternoon. Mark, it's about to close. You just commented, so it is the afternoon. We're all good. Um, Craig, perhaps you could kick off by giving us a little bit of insight into your background and major influences. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, Look, I started in the markets uh, straight from university. That was, um, for me, I started with Macquarie Bank straight out of university. In fact, I hadn't quite finished uni when I started with them. Um, You know, it's probably interesting point there that I think I'd done two and a bit years of university up until that point and learnt more in my first week at Macquarie than I had in the preceding two and a half years of tertiary education, which I think everyone would attest is pretty true in their working life. Um, So I started there as a finance grad. Um, At that stage of the market in the 90s, there was really no better place to work in Australian markets. I think they gave us the opportunity through my career there to spend a fair bit of time in global markets and offshore as well. I'd spent eight years for them in offshore markets out of London and New York. Um, and it was an entrepreneurial bank place of work, which, you know, there was a big agenda set around by the board and management of freedom within boundaries. You know, I think that was a, that was a really important aspect of you know, growing up in the markets and starting in the markets was understanding that you didn't have to do things with a great deal of prescription as long as you were operating to a framework and a boundary that you'd set, which made a lot of sense as a starting point, and a focus on risk-adjusted return. You know, that was a really important place to start in terms of getting a handle on that. Um, The right level of risk-adjusted return return is one of the aspects that we spend a huge amount of time on with the existing strategy as well. Um, Yeah, and, and being opportunistic, I think, One of the things that both Ben and I, Ben's the co-portfolio manager on the strategy that I work on now, Um, one of the things that we both got out of our careers at Macquarie was um, recognising the right times in the market to be opportunistic and take advantage of that, Um, but also not to get too carried away at the wrong times. I would say there was, at the time, no better breeding ground in terms of getting that culture and ethos right. Um, you know, at the time that we started there, Macquarie had a huge competitive edge and strength in resources, commodities and infrastructure. Now, they still do today, obviously, but, you know, that was probably more central to the total panel of the firm at that point in time. 
um, and the agenda for the firm was really set around looking for opportunities globally where they had comfort participating in the space where genuine competitive advantage. I think, you know, as a sort of investment bank based in Australia at that point in time, um, operating on a global scale for them really, really meant taking where your competitive advantages are and harnessing those and leveraging them and taking as much advantage as you can. Um, yeah, that's something that we've kept with us, you know, through our whole careers and particularly myself kept through my whole career is um, making sure that you can find the right ways of utilising competitive advantage and not getting caught up um, with too much noise around you at the same time. So talk to us a little bit about uh, Tribeca and why. So Tribeca is a boutique uh, investment manager based out of Australia. We've, we've also got an office in Singapore. Um, and we've just uh, moved one of our research um, personnel up to the Northern Hemisphere as well. So he's sort of working out of London for the time being. But um, yeah, so global in, in nature. Um, the other strategies that the firm has is a, the firm has started as a, with a small cap strategy. Mm -hmm. Obviously in Australia um, at the time, you know, 20 years ago when that strategy started, um, small cap and still today alternate to a degree. Um, there's also a long short strategy in Australia that the firm has uh, called the Alpha Plus strategy. Um, it's, uh, it's obviously a very successful strategy also. Um, yeah, both of those strategies are very fundamental in nature, um, which is one of the aspects that drew Ben and I to the firm. Um, yeah, it's, it's obviously got uh, a huge focus on alpha generation with a requirement to be doing the right level of rigour from a fundamental perspective um, and to be able to back that. You know, the, being able to back using your competitive edge again and, and backing that is, is, is really important. That's one of the things that I think Tribeca overall does very well. Um, and one of the things that, that we've spent a fair bit of time uh, with our strategy as well, you know, under that umbrella. And when you left Macquarie, was that to set up the Natural Resources Fund for Tri Tribeca? Have I got that right? I'd had, um, I'd left Macquarie in 2010. Yes. <clears throat> so I'd had eight years offshore for them in London and New York, as well as having a, a big chunk of time out of Sydney. Um, I left in 2010 and went to Bank of America, Merrill Lynch in Sydney, um, working on their equities platform. Uh, I had a period of time there where it was probably less um, on the investment side. You know, it was a bit of a change of role as well. It was something that I um, spent a good deal of time on. It was good, good um, experience. But one of the things uh, Ben had sort of been working with the Tribeca team to set up this strategy. Um, he and I had been talking about it for a long period of time. Um, I'll give you some of the reasons as to why we talked about that and yeah, why the please. strategy kind of evolved. Um, <clears throat> the, the strategy that we've got in the, in the natural resources space is long and short. Um, you know, one of the things that you know, through sort of the prolonged bull market of resources, you know, the stronger for longer period, um, you know, we all saw iron ore way through $100, uh, oil way through $100, um, you know, periods where we really couldn't see many people that were taking opportunity on the short side um, in some of these situations that were making sense to us. So, you know, I think 
the peer universe of investors was really sort of mostly built around the long only side, um, which to us didn't make a great degree of sense. You so, know, so you're talking about people investing in resources and holding positions where they're looking for that asset to go up in value and making a profit of it going up versus short, where you're making a profit from it going down. Absolutely, correct, yeah. I mean, look, the natural resources space that we operate in, so the investable universe for us is energy, metals mining, soft commodities and services companies. Um, you know, it sounds relatively narrow, it's, but it's narrow but broad. That segment of the market globally is around $7 trillion. So it's a, it's a pretty big segment of the market. And I think I read something that's around 3,000 companies. Correct, yeah. Yeah, that'd be about right. So it's a pretty big universe. It's an extremely big and, universe. And when most, when many Australians, I guess they think, you know, you've got a few large sort of, you know, BHP, Rio Tinto, Rio Tinto, Fortescue, some big manufacturers, but then you've got a long tail of mm. very small sort of Perth, who knows what they've really got, high risk type investment type of things. Is that fair to say that that sort of colour when, you know, I think we get that from clients when we talk about this strategy. <clears throat> yeah, look, um, the Australian market's probably not a, a, a perfect slice of the global sector. Um, exactly as you described, the market in Australia for resources and energy and services companies is kind of split at very large cap, you know, BHP, Rio, Woodside, um, and then as you say, it splits to then a pretty small cap end of the market after that, which is um, very well described by itself as a tail um, and a long tail. Um, and yeah, looking at that, um, that's one of the reasons why, you know, we've, we've both been in my careers, having been predominantly offshore as well. Um, yeah, if I looked at our existing portfolio today, Australia is without doubt a very important slice of the resources market globally primarily because of BHP and Rio, obviously, um, and then a few of the other companies as well. But you know, I would say the Australian component of our portfolio, on average, consumes sort of anything from kind of 20 to 30% of the portfolio. Mm -hmm. The residual of that coming from Canada and the US predominantly, that's generally 50 to 60% of the portfolio. Asia would be another 10 to 15% and Europe kind of the residual um, of that. Uh, so the Australian market was a, is a great sort of force within resources, but certainly not you know, the be all and end all. There's, there's a lot more going and on. How many there. positions within the fund, how many investments would you typically take on the long side and also the short side? Yeah, so we, we would consider ourselves to be a relative, to, to be a high conviction fund. So yep. as you pointed to before, there's something circa 3,000 plus names in our investable universe. We would hold between 20 to 60 positions within the portfolio at varying points in time. Mm -hmm. um, for us, that's really important. You know, we've got four analysts that work with Ben and I. Um, so it's one of the bigger if not the biggest natural resources team, um, certainly within Asia, if not globally, as a specialist. Um, and even with that size, of, you know, being a bigger team, we would say to you that you need to know every moving part of these companies because highly cyclical in terms of when they do well, how they do well, which is obviously why we take the long, short approach. 
Now you don't, you don't necessarily, you can't sort of ride out the bearish part of a cycle by staying long all the time or, or going a little bit towards more defensive stocks. It doesn't exist in this space, unfortunately. <clears throat> um, but also, that you, know, you, you, you must know every moving part of the company, the management, the operation, the projects of the companies that we're investing long and short in. Um, but also, the commodities is a starting point and the macro component of the market. You know, one of the, <clears throat> obviously, one of the main inputs to our fundamental work on the equities is the commodity price deck and the commodity price forecast as a starting point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we need to do, we do that work ourselves. We obviously look at <clears throat> what the investment banks do um, and what you know, professional forecasters across the market do. How right do you think they get it? Well, I think if you had them in an untaped environment, they would confess to saying that their their accuracy hit rate's not particularly high. Um, look, what, it, what does that mean? 50-50 or 75%? It's worse than 50-50. Unfortunately, in, in, the, in the world of sort of more compliant sort of markets and the, the degree of compliance that, you know, analysts to do a report these days at an investment bank We'll have to write up a report. It goes for authorization. It probably doesn't get published for a day to two to three days after. Sometimes it can be out of date before it's even been sent. Um, and a lot of the banks also have gone more to a sort of quarterly forecasting on commodities, which is used across the market um, by generalist investors predominantly. Um, but it's just generally they're pr- chasing their tail more so than you know, playing catch-up of most recent forecasted price versus current price, more so than being able to look at it in a more dynamic fashion. Now, we, we reassess our commodity price deck minimum once a week, if not every day. Um, and you know, we've got sort of specialist focus on that. Um, so talk a little bit more about the, the process. You've talked about sort of starts with the commodity and sort of a ranking process. Can you talk a bit more about the process that you go through to come up with your ultimate positions? Yeah, sure. So first, starting at the top, first and foremost, we yep. go through a, a, a macro view of commodities. So we divide the commodity set. I think it divides for us into about 15 commodities that we do detailed demand and supply forecasting on. Um, so those type of commodities are what sort of things? Copper, zinc, yeah, uh, nickel, iron ore, oil. You know the variants. Sure. You know, oil's generally just called oil, but obviously the variants of sort of um, heavy and light uh, through 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 the spectrum there. Also, and did I read right that one of those commodities might be medical cannabis? That is uh, one of the commodities that has right. been we'll, in the we'll, portfolio. We'll in come the past. back to that. <laughs> okay. We'll come back to that. All right, so, so you've got that commodity macro level, then what's next? So we set our agenda as, you know, at that point we do our forecasting, compare you know, spot prices, forward curves of commodities versus where we see expect curves to be or should be. Um, again, you know, we won't get that right to sort of one decimal point. We won't probably get that right to 1% of price forecast either, but yeah, it's important for us to get that right within tolerance and direction and bias correct. So we, that's where we're starting. Obviously, that is a pretty big input to then our equity valuations of, the, of companies. Um, 
That's important. Also, our fund invests long short within equities, but also we can invest across the capital stack. So we can take credit investments um, also in these corporates within our investable universe. So we look at commodity price, input, you know, obviously financial metrics, balance sheet, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and how production of particular mining projects is going to go for those companies. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll come to a fair value of what we think an equity might be worth. It, it, yeah, if you're looking at 20 to 60 positions in the portfolio, if we've got a view on, to use an example, if we've got a view on copper, we want to get involved there. Um, yeah, pure play copper across the world is probably at from our point of view, probably 10 companies that we model globally. Um, and long or short, we'd, we'd, we'd end up in a situation where probably one to three of those would fit the profile of what position that we want to take at that point in time. Um, and we'll obviously go through that with our, with our analysts. Very detailed, bottom-up work, both with the company, taking into account analysts work across the street from the investment banks and so on as well. Um, but obviously a big sort of component of what we've done ourselves, um, forming the basis of do we want to be long, short, indifferent in mm -hmm. the in the companies within the space? Um, and that's obviously then how we set the portfolio from that point. I was interested to read uh, in some of your material that in 2017 um, you had a thousand company meetings and 50 mine site visits. Um, talk to me about those mine site visits. I, I, I have this picture of you know, guys in suits walking around going, yeah, there's a big digger over there, etc. Um, you know, how, how hands-on are you in that process and how much do you get out of those site visits um, as part of your process? It's integral to the process, obviously. We've, um, yeah, the, the four analysts that work with us, plus Ben and I, yeah, the, the company visits that we do, you know, either to their, you know, you do a company visit to their corporate head office, which is nice, but ultimately the most important visit you'll do for a, a mining or energy company or a soft commodity company is to site. Um, you know, executives, management is a very important aspect of investing in a company and work that we've done with management, um, how efficient we think they are, how um, robust the team is, et cetera, et cetera. But very often, you know, it's an important part of the mine site visit to look at the operation, speak to more of the people that are hands-on operating, um, you know, speaking to the people in the varying sort of C-level positions, be it CEO, CFO, et cetera, is very important. Um, but ultimately, yeah, in a lot of the companies that we look at, sometimes, I mean, commodity price, right, and being involved in the right market for the company is one thing, but if they're operating, hits a hiccup or a production mishap or something like that, yeah, you know, it's not, it's going to be a pretty bad situation. That's a left, that's, that shouldn't be a left field risk for you. You want to assess that. Um, so a lot of the meetings that we do are on the basis of building a profile of the company as well. You know, <clears throat> we don't just do site visits for companies that we're invested in, you know, obviously we're building, building a, constantly building a resource of our own, which is, um, you know, understanding 
the full operating environment of not just companies we're invested long short in, but also the companies, their peers, and what's going on around them. Um, yeah, it's very important. And I think, look, our, our strategy is, is quite active. Um, you know, we, we, we hold you know, a big chunk of our portfolio, we hold for lengths of time of sort of 12 months plus. Um, but it's a volatile environment in a volatile space. So, you know, on average, some of the positions that we have in the portfolio may only be in the portfolio for three to six months. Um, so, it's important for us to understand the full landscape of competitors per commodity, peer, peer companies per commodity, um, and be looking at how how efficient they all are and, and yes, it's, it's a big, I, I, I take your point that, um, you know, we, we do, I look at my analyst desks and they've, they've all got, you know, dirty clothes sitting under it for mine site visits. So it's certainly not out there in three piece suits doing visits to site and so on. I can understand, I can certainly understand that. Um, and you'd get that, some good looks vision. for some of the machine operators out there. Yeah. Um, just switching gear a little bit here, um, you know, it seems to me that China's been a very big influence in the recent past on resources and the demand for resources globally. Um, where do you see India fitting into the position going now and going forward? Yeah, look, India is not an easy one, I would say. Um, I, I'd also say that I think many people would all agree that India has been the next big thing on a two-year horizon for probably about ten, 10 years. <laughs> um, <clears throat> China's still the major play, obviously. China currently, and our expectation is on an ongoing basis um, in the near term, uh, is you know, consumes 50% of the world's commodities. Um, yeah, that's where we spend a huge amount of our time, and rightly we should. Um, India so, how, is, so how do you feel about China now? Uh, China, obviously, look, the situation of tariff wars, trade wars, currency wars between the US and China yep. is obviously has the potential to be impactful to global growth. Do we believe at this point of time that it will be negative, have a negative impact in a substantial way? Not on the view of what we've seen so far. I think. Um, announcements that China had out over the weekend, um, in particular, we, we saw a lot of short covering where in the market yesterday, um, as an example, where um, people had positioned the short China trade in terms of you know a very cursory opinion about this trade war scenario. Um, the information we saw out of China recently is that they're operating with a controlled growth style, you know, they realised that flooded stimulus in short time frames does not, is not what's required for them. Um, it's a far more controlled environment. And they've really put a message up recently in terms of we have the capacity for growth without a reliance on the USA. Please, please USA see this and please USA acknowledge this. And I think that's pretty important. Um, they have there's a big opportunity. You can set one of the things that we've talked about a reasonable amount with our investors is, you know, things like electric vehicles and the sort of battery 
storage of energy sort of thematic on an ongoing basis. If I just look at, obviously Tesla gets most of the world's news flow yep. about that. But if I look at China here specifically, the greener China, beautification, you know, blue sky China, greener China, um, and the resetting of a huge export market for the developed world in terms of um, combustion engine vehicles is a big play for China here right now. Um, one, it's for their own market domestically, but two, now this could, and the view out of China is that it could be a big situation for them in terms of a resetting of the playing field for a big export market potential for them. Um, be that through... So move up the curve in terms of value-added goods rather than just having your T-shirts manufactured there, you're going to have a yeah, high-value-add electronic vehicle. Absolutely. I mean, that's something that domestically is very attractive to them. Um, in the world of trying to lower pollution, uh, have a lower pollution um, situation for themselves, as well as uh, a huge opportunity as an export market. Um, yeah, that's not just electric motorbikes, it's electric cars, it's electric buses. Um, you know, Warren Buffett's even, yeah, take Warren Buffett as an example, he's invested in, in, in BYD, one of the big Chinese um, manufacturers. Um, but also, yeah, just the, the, the battery component of the market too. Um, so they're all presenting opportunities, uh, you think. Now, switching back to, to that India, so India's been this sort of, yes, it's going to happen two years out, yes, it's going to happen two years out. And One of my colleagues said to talk about, you know, the ask about the Delhi-Mumbai corridor and uh, is that going to be the next sort of infrastructure expansion as, as China was, you know, you seem to be a little bit sceptical, I'm taking from your body language here, that India's sort of investable? Uh, well, look, I'm not sceptical that it's investable. I think um, we've spent, we continue to spend a fair amount of time on it because you don't want, we, we certainly don't want to be blind to it um, and we certainly don't, wouldn't want to ignore it. Um, do we think that it's going to replace the growth drive that China's given or, you know, usurp sort of the the amount of demand that China's um, got there at the moment, mm, I'd be sceptical on that. Um, it's not as organised as an economy. Um, it, uh, it, it, it obviously has huge infrastructure requirements and, and so on themselves as well. It's an it's a emerging market with great development potential. Um, but I think you know, it needs political organisation to be able to do that in a similar format to what we've seen China do in recent times. As a, as a, it's hard to make the comparison, but I think you've kind of asked on a comparative basis. Mm. Um, that's probably the way I'd view it right now. Okay. Um, you know, I think on a global basis, as we say it right now, it's important, absolutely. What, what India does and can do is important. Um, have we built in a huge expectation for in our global growth numbers and commodity demand numbers? Um, it'd be a surprise to the upside for us um, as part of our commodity modelling. Um, so that would be nice and it would be a nice surprise to have. Um, we have clearly assumptions for it which are you know, for, for, for pretty decent growth. but. Um, I wouldn't say that we are looking to it for huge reliance and none of the 
of the companies that we are currently invested in um, have a reliance on it for you know, big chunks of their revenue on an ongoing basis. Are your short positions driven by macro themes such as that or are they more driven by opportunistic specific company issues? And I, I noticed there you said, you know, there'd be a nice surprise on the upside, but I also note in 2014-15 where commodity prices were largely negative across the board, you are actually able to make money. So I'm just thinking how those short positions play out and how you take those positions. Are they really a specific company you don't like or is there an overall theme that you think is overdone or a commodity price? How do you formulate that? Yeah, look, it could be a combination of both of those factors or one or the other, absolutely. Um, I don't mean to sort of throw a blanket over your answer there, sure. but it, it, it genuinely could be. Um, yeah, some of our shorts are come about because of what we see as structural problems with the company. Now, as we, we were talking before about you know, potential production um, delays or mishaps or et cetera, et cetera, um, or the company's too highly leveraged to have a cash requirement that, that we just don't think they're gonna be able to get to, um, you know, structural issues, um, all the commodity that's on, you know, their commodity that they're operating with, um, we may see a structural sort of issue with that as well. Um, yeah, it could be a situation where we don't, we think the demand for the commodity just isn't at the level that the, the, the company thinks it is and the production that they're about to flood the market with. Um, yeah, there's been situations like that. Really though, the perfect situation is when you get the combination of both of those, you know, having more than one duck lining up is always your best scenario. Um, so that's the perfect short, honestly yeah. and really. Um, do they present themselves regularly? No. Um, during 2014 and 15, to go back to that part of your question, we one of the aspects really important for our fund is that it's long, it's a long short fund, but we're not market neutral. You know, a big part of the specialisation that we run is that we're operating in a big investable universe. It's a specialised space, though. Um, you know, people should expect that we are taking those risks at the appropriate times, long or short, and the net result of that for us could be net short across the portfolio, um, which is a situation that we did run 14-15 to get that positive return in when the market, when the subsectors for us, for our investable universe were down 40-50%. Um, the fund returned, you know, around 20%. So as an excess return, really sort of quite important. Um, this is how you get the headlines in the AFR that you've got. Yeah, I, well, we probably underplay that a bit, but yeah, it's, 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 look, it's really important for us. It's, um, you know, our money, we're big, we're, we're two of the biggest investors in, in the fund ourselves. So, yeah, you know, that, we, we want to be... That's what we like. <laughs> we we want to be sure that, um, yeah, if the market is going down, yeah, long short for some people means kind of eighty percent long, ten percent short. For us, um, in situ in such a cyclical space where you know it can be prone to big drag downs through time as well as huge uplift, you want to be able to take advantage of both sides of that equation across your portfolio in the right time. So it's important to be nimble and yeah, you know, moving that net position well, that, that's for the portfolio. An around. Distinction, I think most of investors in that long short space are sort of you know a traditional industrial equities or global where you've got 20 or 30 
long positions with a couple of shorts that might sort of take the sting off things if markets come down, but not to that same degree. So that's really helpful to know. Now, before we leave, I, I'm not going to be able to get away without circling back to this medical cannabis. And I actually saw salmon on there as well, which sort of made me think. But talk to me about medical cannabis, where you've invested in that and what your outlook is for that. It's a pretty topical sure. subject. So, look, one of the important things for us as investors is being early to a theme. If you've done a, a great deal of work and you find a theme early, is a situation when the greatest returns are possible. Um, you know, the medical cannabis space for us was something that we invested in, only a small component of the portfolio, but it probably got more a disproportionate amount of attention from the media when it had been in a couple of our newsletters. Um, but obviously the situation in Canada where yeah, there was legalisation going on um, and then state by state in the US as well, not at a federal level but state by state, um, they were situations where we sent one of our analysts up to the, to the US um, North American markets for two, three months um, to spend a lot of time on, you know, is this a theme we want to be involved with early? Does this make sense and what's the best way to approach it? Um, very early doors, the best way to approach it was with those people who had received the first licences to grow um, for production of, um, medical of medical cannabis products. Um, you know, just like the evolution of most sectors, the, the, the market has probably moved from that point, but early doors, um, yeah, there was probably a bit of a bubble and some pretty fast, um, some pretty fast, fast money. Uh, money created there. Um, yeah, I guess we did very well out of it by being early to that theme. Um, in hindsight, if you asked, you know, what sort of mistakes have you made sort of through time, that would be one of them. We probably sold out of it earlier than, it, it's easy to say you sold out too early after the fact. Um, you know, we, we sort of made in some of those situations, three to five times on the invest in, on the investments. Um, again, they're you know, relatively small components of the portfolio, but when they're going up sort of three and five times during those time frames, it's 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 good attribution. Um, that that market's obviously now evolving, where Canada and the US are obviously going from sort of medical markets to recreational markets as well. We're seeing a bit of it in Australia now with a number of couple of listed companies in Australia who have now one of them in particular has got a export licensing as well and some of those Canadian companies have got cross shareholdings to a couple of the names in Australia as well. Um, yeah, so it was an interesting space, uh, early doors and ongoing. And you're out of that market now? Or we've got we've still got some investments in that space. Um, yeah, the, the the early investments in some of the Canadian names that we had have moved around a bit. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we yeah. If I said that originally, we invested initially in that market by buying convertibles. Actually, um, we bought convertibles in a couple of those companies, so we were getting a coupon of about ten percent, um, which had equity call options, or you know where we had the ability to convert from debt to equity, you know, where the share price was kind of. 25, 30% above 
where the share price was at the time that we'd taken the convertible on. Mm -hmm. It's a nice risk-adjusted way to be able to take that sort of investment, to be quite honest. Um, Piece of debt with, some free, with a free option. Get some coupon and cash carry um, from the company, mm -hmm. as well as the, the ability to, equita uh, to participate in the equity upside is really nice. Um, okay. The interesting thing in that market at that time was the one, I, look, I recall one of them in particular, we'd had the convertible for a grand total of uh, three and a half months before um, the share price was 100% uh, through where the call option was. Um, so, you know, that, that, that did pan out in a, probably a little quicker than we were expecting to be quite frank. Um, but for us, it was, you know, proof, proof positive that doing that investment in that style was the right, was a, was a, was a good way to go. Um, you know, and that kind of goes back to one of the earlier comments I made about constant focus on what's the best risk adjusted way to invest in this space, because it is highly volatile. We, you know, like, Many investors have invested PA themselves in companies that they've got share certificates sitting in the bottom drawer because you know they bought something at ten mm -hmm. cents and now it's at one. Um, you know, sometimes with the right amount of due diligence and 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 looking at these things, uh, you know, those types of investments can be um, you know go up exponentially. But in a specialised sort of ways, a lot of the corporate activity that we look at, you know, we're obviously a big player on the street with across the globe. So, you know, a lot of the corporate activity that comes in our space, being a specialist manager, we, we spend a lot of time with the banks and advisors on what's coming up. We we look at, um, you know, obviously all of the corporate activity that's coming. Um, it's, a, it's something we spend a good amount of time on because, you know, that's one of the things that we know we can provide to investors is using our relationships and using our footprint to be able to also give them that access to the right deals at the right time. Um, taking the approach of taking a little bit of everything that comes up is certainly not something you'd ever see from us. Um, yeah, again, 20 to 60 positions in the portfolio, we're pretty thorough and very, very rigorous about how we go about our investments. So. That's a big part of our specialisation there. And what's your outlook like? Yeah, so um, I guess we, we, we can't talk about the outlook without referring back to that earlier point of um, you know, what do we think about trade wars. I, I'm, I don't think I'd like to you know, give a, a, a firm and long-term prediction about trade wars and tariffs, but we're, we're still fundamentally positive on global growth. Um, you know, cost inflation, we've been seeing cost inflation um, for many of the companies in our universe for, you know, six to nine months. I think the broader economy is starting to see that as well. We're in an inflationary environment. So it's an environment that we see as being particularly good for commodities as well. Um, we've got net long positioning at the moment. You know, again, we've got the ability to be long short. So in, in three to six months time, that very well could change. Um, yeah, maybe next week that changes. But you know, I think we're fairly, we're very confident as we see the world at the moment that commodity landscape looks pretty good. Um, obviously, um, you know, given the the date that we're having a chat here today, recent weeks has been flighty in some commodities and and reasonably um, robust in others. You know, I'm talking sort of copper, zinc, nickel, etc. Have been um, 
depressed over the last week, more so to do with US dollar strength um, and CTAs and quant funds and so on, um, having positioning in, in some of these. Um, yeah, fundamentally, our view and you know, our, our demand supply has not been impacted and we don't see great change there. Um, these are the sorts of timeframes where dislocations that you see in that way, um, that's where opportunities come up. So, so you're basically saying there, there's some hedge funds and uh, commodity trading where they're using automated trading algorithms and patterns that are selling things based not on fundamentals. So it's presenting a dislocation in the market, an opportunity for people like yourselves. Look, I, I so, think um, generalist hedge funds, uh, look, we, we, we really like generalist hedge funds participating in our space because if someone's <laughs> going to spend 10 to 15 minutes thinking about fintech long short, 10 to 15 minutes thinking about commodity and copper long short and 30 minutes talk, thinking about their short position in Tesla and so on. Feel like your odds against them. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, but fully recognising, we, we have to be very cognizant and recognise that um, that's part of the total market dynamic that we're dealing with and, and um, part of our investment universe, that the noise and volatility is created by these sorts of situations. Now, US dollar and its moves have impacts on commodity prices. Um, do we get periods where we have a rising dollar, fundamentally sort of strong economic growth, commodity prices can withstand that, etc.? cetera? Um, yeah, those types of timeframes can sort of create that as well. Um, but as you said, CTAs, hedge funds, et cetera, et cetera, the flightiness that we've seen recently has been more to do with people trading correlations and doing fundamental work on uh, the commodity subsets and, and the inputs. Terrific. Thank you very much, Craig. That's been really educational and valuable. Thanks for joining us in Inside the Road. Thanks a lot, Dave. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.